Groucho Marx is credited with the saying that he had no respect for any organization that would have someone like him as a member. I think it's human nature to exclude. Members only. That's the VIP section. That's not for people like them. And this attitude of exclusion, it even extends to places like the historic Moody Church. Why is it that all the good-looking people sit in one section? Don't look around. Look at me. Don't, don't, don't look around. This morning, in the passage we have the privilege of perusing, we see how God supernaturally breaks through the barriers of exclusion that have been erected and maintained by tradition, by prejudice, by preferences, by bias, and how God himself brings the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. The setting is in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, formerly known as Stratos Tower, it was under the guidance of Herod the Great that so many renovations occurred. Now, Herod did a lot of things, but he was really a magnificent builder. And he embarked on this renovation. They renamed Stratos Tower to Caesarea in honor of Caesar Augustus. And they dredged it out. The port became prominently important. It became the headquarters in northern Palestine. History tells us that Pontius Pilate had his residence there and that the proconsul of Rome lived there as well. And even today, and if you're blessed to go on a tour with Pastor Lutzer to Israel, you'll see Caesarea and you'll see what remains of the theater. This thing was so well built, even today they're still trying to figure out how was it erected without any of the modern technology. It was during this time that the port of Sebastos became really the largest port in the eastern Mediterranean. Herod was pretty inventive and creative. They took volcanic ash and they used it to make the breakwaters so that they wouldn't float. This is a place that's really important for Imperial Rome and so you have an influx of Roman soldiers and citizens and Gentiles, and they are in conflict with the Jews. This conflict is deep-rooted. For the past hundred years, the Jews have lived under the occupation and oppression of Rome, and the Jews consider the Gentiles to be common, unholy, and in fact, to associate with them would make a Jew ceremoniously unclean. Now, you do business with them if you must, but you don't fraternize with them, never. Jews were ever vigilant during this time to work hard at not contaminating themselves with the Gentiles by associating with them, by being with them, by socializing with them, by eating with them. The attitude of most Jews regarding the Gentiles is they were dogs, fit to be kindling to stoke the furnaces of hell. We don't like them. We'd like to get rid of them. This is the setting. This is the place. 
Caesarea is real, and the person that we're going to talk about is real. He was a real man, and his name is Cornelius. If you brought your Bibles today, I want you to turn there, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seat backs in front of you. It's page 918. We begin at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Your Bible may say regiment, but it means regiment or cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour, which would be approximately 3 o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. The text goes on to tell us that immediately Cornelius responded. Immediately he responded. Now perhaps it's his training as a soldier. You simply follow orders. Or does this really reveal his heart? You see, there was no hesitation here. There's no questions, there's no excuses. No explanation was needed. God told him to do something. And he does it. When Luke gives us this description of Cornelius, he starts off by giving us his secular status, if you would, please. He tells us he's a centurion. Now, most people who ascended to the ranks of centurion, they actually came up through the ranks. You weren't just appointed. It would be the equivalent of what we would call a captain. He had 100 soldiers at his command. This is an important person. But then he tells us a little bit about his spiritual condition. We get his secular status, we get his resume, but then notice how he details his spiritual condition. He says in verse two, he is a devout man and one who feared God. At first glance, this really seems to say the same thing, but they're really two very different things. This devout actually, that word is only found here and in verse 7. The translation would be that this is a reverent attitude towards God, but one who needs further information to bring them to biblical faith. God-fearing is a high, more technical term. Do you see it there in the text? This is far more precise. Here, at this time, you have Gentiles who fall into two categories. You have what are called the proselytes. These are those that have fully embraced Judaism. They've become circumcised. They are following the traditions. They are practicing the Levitical code. They have converted fully to Judaism. And then this term of art is used to describe Cornelius. He is a God-fearer, which means he hasn't become circumcised, but he has rejected the bankruptcy of paganism and is going through the traditions and the rituals and the prayers of Judaism. 
Certainly a harder heart would be someone who had converted fully to Judaism, but we see that Cornelius has a heart that is seeking after God. He has not become a proselyte. He is a God-fearing person. Hmm. He selects two servants from his household and one soldier and that's the only other time we see this word devout used. That's in verse 7. The soldier was devout as well. How interesting. And then he dispatches them to Joppa to look for Peter. Now he takes them into his confidence, which I find very interesting. This is a man of authority. A centurion could simply say, listen, I want you to go get Peter. Here's where you'll find him. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Aye, aye, sir. He takes them into his confidence. He tells them, listen, I just had a vision. And this vision told me to send people, and vision told me to go get this guy, Peter, and I want you to help me in that regard. And they go. Off to Joppa to look for Peter in the house of Peter, the tanner by the sea. The story then shifts on us, and the narrative jumps from Caesarea to Joppa to the Apostle Paul. Because here, we find out that God must now prepare Peter for these visitors. Before Peter can preach and proclaim the promise of the gospel, God has to deal with his prejudice against the Gentiles. The text tells us the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, which would be noon, lunchtime. He goes up on the top to pray, and he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending bringing and letting down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there was a voice that said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Yes, Lord. Do you see that in your text? No, look at verse 14. Now, this is the Lord speaking to him. Notice the contrast between the Lord tells Cornelius something to do. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't offer any excuses. He just says, we're sending him. Go find him. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon, unholy, unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, this is really interesting. Peter acknowledges the Lord. He says, no, Lord, yet he says, no. Now, perhaps Peter thought it was a test, that he was being tested regarding whether or not he would adhere to Jewish tradition and the Levitical code. The command is given, the message is repeated, not once, not twice, but three times. Oh, I wish I could linger here for a moment. How many times does the Lord have to tell you something before you will obey? The truth, beloved, is that God's will often isn't a mystery. We simply just don't want to do it. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church is the command. No mystery in God's will. Early in our marriage, in my attempt to express my devotion to my life, my wife, I would tell her things like, you know, baby, I would die for you. Lamita got me straight. She said, look here, Slick, before you die, can you take the garbage out? <laughs> I got some, have some chores you can do. And then you can get on the phone and we can double up on that life insurance before you, before you start talking about dying for somebody. But, the, but God commands us as husbands, I'm, I'll get back to the text, to be intentional and sacrificial and ever vigilant in protecting and providing for our wives. I'm out here now, so I might as well finish it. Wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> Children, obey your parents. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Speak the truth in love. A lot of times, the will of God really isn't a mystery. We simply just don't want to do it. Let's get back to the text. Now, as much as I would like for this passage to be about the sanctification of pork, it's really not about food. <laughs> it has nothing whatsoever to do with bacon or andouille sausage or honey-baked ham, pork chops, ribs, baby back, or St. Louis style with potato salad and a little tangy sauce. Nothing! It has nothing whatsoever to do about food. Peter, <laughs> Peter is perplexed, trying to understand, what does this mean? And that's when these three messengers arrive from Cornelius. Look at the text with me, 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Now while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius and Centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, there's that term of art again, God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Look at verse 23. So he, Peter, invited them in to be his guest. What? Are you crazy? You're inviting them into your house? We don't fraternize with them. We don't socialize with them. You can't have them in your house. What's changed? Why is Peter changed? We'll see in a moment. Peter goes with them back to Caesarea and he takes six Jewish Christians with him. 
Cornelius is anticipating their arrival. In fact, Cornelius has invited friends and family, and they're waiting for Peter to come back. Now, God never told Cornelius why Peter was coming. And God never told Peter why he was going. Nevertheless, Cornelius is expecting and anticipating a word from God. When Peter approaches, Cornelius falls down as if to worship him. And Peter says, no, no, I'm just a man just like you. You don't worship me. Now we have to see this in its context. The Jews have been oppressed by Rome. They've been oppressed by the Gentiles. They don't hold them in very high regard. And here is a centurion falling down to worship him. Your flesh, the temptation, certainly would have been to accept that moment of finally, yeah, it's about time. Bow down, dog. No, Peter says no, and here it is, verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation but God. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. When did God show him that? We have this wonderful narrative. When was he shown that he should not call any person unholy, unclean, common? It was the sheet. Animals, men. The vision that he had was God telling him this. And this is what now it becomes very clear to Peter. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and now I'm asking, why have you sent for me? Hmm. Cornelius then explains the vision that he had and becomes Peter's turn to speak. So Peter opens his mouth and he says, I understand now that God shows no partiality. I understand now, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I understand now what Jesus was teaching us and showing us. I understand. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth and the Holy Spirit with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 30, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, and he rose from the dead. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through their name. That's about as far as Peter gets. Because at that point, it is as if the Holy Spirit himself says amen to his sermon. Because what happens at that point, as soon as he says that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive forgiveness of sins, those who are assembled believed. And because they believed, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. God Almighty himself said, amen and amen. You believe, you receive. And immediately, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. The uniqueness of the covenant relationship that Israel had had blinded them to the scope, the depth, and the breadth of God's plan. Peter now sees that the Abrahamic covenant itself mentions all families of the earth. But the Jews were so impressed with their distinctiveness with their exclusivity as a chosen people that they had relegated others to a subordinate position. I find it interesting in the text that Peter compresses Jesus' ministry to two things, doing good and healing all oppressed by Satan. Hmm. While Peter was still saying these things, while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that's the six that came with him from Joppa, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles even on them. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptism from these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's confirmation here is swift and it's unmistakable. The experience here is the same experience that the 12 experienced on the day of Pentecost. You remember, after Peter's first sermon, Jewish converts heard the word, they believed, they were baptized before they received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. You remember when the Samaritans came to saving faith, they have to wait on the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues in the day of Pentecost was the means by which the Holy Spirit witnessed to Israel a sign that the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. The granting of this gift of the Holy Spirit to the uncircumcised Gentiles who had yet to even be baptized was a powerful demonstration of the acceptability of the Gentiles now on the basis of faith alone. Beloved, Baptism doesn't save you. Nor does this passage teach us that speaking in tongues is normal or something to be expected. It was a sign for Peter 
for him to understand that the same Holy Spirit that you received, the same Holy Spirit has now visited upon them. And that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. The significance of what had happened was not lost on the Jewish Christians. The Holy Spirit has been poured out even on them. As we consider the text, there are seven truths that are reflected in God's plan of salvation. And the first truth is simply this, there is a plan. The gospel, the plan of salvation to reconcile sinful humanity to our holy God wasn't crafted by Peter. No, this plan was designed by God before the foundation of the world itself came into existence. Now we can only grasp so much of God's wisdom and his majesty and his power and his genius and his sovereignty, but I want you to consider for a moment how is it that someone could even conceive such a plan to reconcile mankind? What an awesome God we serve. How is it that it not only could be conceived, but it could be placed into motion? Not only is it placed into motion, but it is well executed. And it is executed across time itself, through every generation, through every tongue, and the gates of hell itself can't prevail against the plan of God. Oh, beloved, there is a plan. What an awesome God we serve. Two. God has a divine interest in our salvation, his divine concern for our souls. You'll notice in the text that he called Cornelius by name. Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus. He is called by name. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, he's still calling us by name. God knows you. We'd still have to praise him if he just said wholesale to all of humanity, here's the message for everyone who lives and breathes, but he doesn't. He calls us by name. Oh, some of you know what I'm talking about. The day occurred when he said, Daniel, Erwin, John, Jerry, Mary. He calls us by name because he has a divine interest in our salvation. He is concerned for our soul. Three, the passage tells us clearly that works won't save you. Now, Cornelius was an interesting fellow. He worked his way up through the ranks. He's a centurion. He's accomplished. He is, as the text tells us, respected. He's kind. He's generous. He's sensitive, he's respectful, he's religious, he's popular. But those things won't save you. Your pedigree won't save you. Your address, your zip code will not save you. Your job, your job title, your acts of kindness, these things will not save you. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone, beloved, that saves. And we are reminded that when we look at his credentials. For God's plan is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like Peter. 
you know, he's because he's flawed in so many ways. And he's a study in contrast. Peter can be bold and he can be unstable. He can be strong and he can be weak. But it's the Holy Spirit that stabilizes, isn't the Holy Spirit that strengthens. And in fact, in our lives, beloved, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sins and impresses upon our minds of our need for a Savior. It's the Holy Spirit that enables and equips and encourages us for service in the heart of God. And that should always be remembered when we attempt to share the gospel. Yes, we want to be a good apologetics, and yes, you want to know the scripture and know what you know, but make no mistake about it, unless God opens a heart and the Holy Spirit enables, they will not be called. It's the work of the Holy Spirit working in our lives that brings people to saving faith, which brings me to point five. God uses us believers as his instruments to share the gospel. Cornelius' heart was ready. God could have simply said to him, believe on Jesus. You'll be said, Cornelius would have done whatever he was told. Why use Peter? Why even bring Peter into the equation? Certainly he had to deal with Peter's prejudice. Why does God choose to use us as the instruments to share the story of Jesus with the loss? Huh. You know, it's kind of like a scalpel. The scalpel is sitting on a tray in the hospital operating room. Now, the scalpel has been designed and crafted. It's been sharpened and sanitized. It's wrapped, but there it sits. And it isn't until that scalpel is placed in the hand of that skilled surgeon that it now becomes an instrument for health. The incision reveals the source of the pain and the harm and the surgeon excises that that needs to be removed. We are God's instruments and we are in the hands of the great physician. And he takes us and he uses us where he has placed us to share that that heals the heart. Now, to be true, not everyone's a scalpel. There are some blunt instruments. There are some sledgehammers. God uses those as well. <laughs> As he pounds the truth into us. I, you know, maybe I'm out here by myself, but I've had the truth pounded into me a couple of times, and I thank you, Father. Six, God's plan. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings peace. What an appropriate message at such an appropriate time. We've heard me say it before that people oftentimes reflect on the violence here in Chicago. They say that the violence is large part due to drugs in our city and in the neighborhoods. That the violence is because we are overrun with gangs in the neighborhoods. That violence exists in the city of Chicago because of the presence of guns. 
The violence, beloved, does not exist because of the presence of guns. It's the absence of Jesus. Peace requires divine intervention. Peace was the keystone of the angelic proclamation at the birth of Jesus. Peace well summarizes the good news of his mission by which those that are estranged and unholy sinners are reconciled with a righteous and holy God. You see, God's plan transforms lives. God's plan heals the broken heart. God's plan of the gospel, once it has taken hold in someone's life and transforms them, breaks through the barriers of tradition. It breaks through the barriers of prejudice. It breaks through the barriers of bias. And the howls of hatred are hushed. Clamor yields to the harmony of praise and worship and the unity of the spirit. Seven, this plan is for everyone. Even them, you ask? Yes, from Nigeria to Nicaragua, from Puerto Rico to Paris, from Albania to Australia, from India, Japan, Korea, Madagascar, Montana, and yes, even Canada. And not just foreign places like that. The gospel is for everyone, from Wheaton to the west side of Chicago, from Rogers Park to Pilsen, from Inglewood to Lawndale, from Lincoln Park. Yes, even them. But what about Boys Town? Yes, even them. Even us. What about me, Lord? Can it really be true that you love me, that you died for me, even me, Lord, that you put my sins as far as the east is from the west, that you'll create a clean heart in me, that you can use even me, that you can bless me and enable me and equip me and use me. Yes, even them, even us, even me, even you. Let's pray. Father, I've said what you would have me to say. Take the little that I have and use it for your glory. Let it be used now, Father, for the results that you desire. Even now, you may be calling. For those who have heard this message and they are responding in faith that Jesus forgives them for their sins, would you give them courage to respond? It's Jesus who is calling. 
Will you be like Cornelius and immediately respond without question? Or are there traditions and barriers and bias and prejudice in the way? We collectively cry out to you, Lord, to forgive us if we've had judgmental attitudes regarding people who are different from the way that we look, sound, or talk. We pray now that you would use us mightily for your kingdom, that your word would continue to go forth from this place with power and authority to transform lives and to share the good news of the gospel with every tribe, with every nation, with every tongue. Bind us in the truth and the unity of the spirit now, we pray. In the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Savior and our King, and amen.